Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shechem, And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. My Father, we ask that you would speak to us through this, through this passage, through this chapter. As always, Father, let us understand your truth, not our own. Help us to bask in you and in your presence and in your truth alone. And Father, may you teach us, may you encourage us, may you sift us, Father, that we might be more like you and understand you more deeply, Father, so that we might then proclaim with our words and with our life the truth of your Son and the gospel that is found in him and eternal life. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Oh, so excited. Wow, I'm overwhelmed. Well, we have two, three, three weeks left in 1 Samuel. After 1 Samuel, we're going to take a little break from Samuel's, and we're going to jump into Titus. We're going to do, spend about five or six weeks, or six weeks in Titus, and then we're going to jump uh, throughout the summer, we're going to do about 12 different psalms. Um, and, uh, and then beginning in the fall, we'll jump right back into 2 Samuel, because, you know, it feels like we've left off in the middle of the story, and so we need to continue the story. So that's just an idea of where we're where we're going. We're going to continue to work through Scripture verse by verse, word by word, and just try to figure out and grasp understanding of who God is, what He has to teach us, and that we might submit to Him and find joy, because that's where our ultimate joy is. But Samuel is dead. I was a, my, Whenever we read Scripture, and I always tell the kids, I love those, those passages, Samuel is dead. He's, he's died. He's gone. Well, he's, he's the influential judge and he's the influential priest of Israel for years. And now he's gone. And all the mediums and the necromancers, what we would call fortune tellers, palm readers, astrologists, and the like, they've been kicked out of the country. And so when Saul sees the size of the Philistine army, he becomes afraid. His heart trembles greatly it says. And this is similar to the words describing the Israelite army and Saul himself as they were confronted by the challenge of Goliath so many years earlier. In that incident, Saul and the army were dismayed and afraid, are the words that it says, to the point that they actually refused to fight. But then a young man named David steps into the role of Israel's savior from certain death, he trusts in the power of God to defeat Goliath, and he wins. Well, not really. God wins through David. 
Here, in this chapter, Saul finds himself again experiencing the same dismay and fear at the Philistines, but this time, there's no David. David is actually with the Philistines, strangely enough, and Samuel's dead. Samuel's gone, and all the mediums and the necromancers have been kicked out by Saul. So what is he supposed to do? Now, to his credit, and I I say this very lightly, to Saul's credit, he does go to the Lord first. But the Lord doesn't answer him either through a dream, by the rolling of the dice, or by a prophet, because the Lord had left Samuel long before this incident. He was no longer with Saul, not, not Samuel, Saul. Nothing is helping Saul diminish his fear or guide him as to what to do next. Does he run away? Does he attack? But God isn't answering. And so he says to his servants, you got to find me a medium. Got to find me a spiritist. You know those, those people that I kicked out of the country? I need you to go find one for me. And so then let's pick it up in verse 8. Through 14. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whatever, whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is this appearance? What is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Saul puts on a disguise in order to cover his kingly appearance, an act which reveals not simply that he doesn't want to be recognized, but also that he is not the king that he is supposed to be. He's hiding his identity as the anointed king. He may have expelled all the mediums and necromancers because it was commanded by God to do so in the law of Moses, but his heart was actually far from reflecting such an obedience now. Because that same law also commands that anyone turning to mediums was to be cut off from the people of God. That means they are out of his covenant promise. Saul's heart is far from faithful and obedient to the rule of the Lord in his life and in his kingship. And the medium, immediately suspicious and reluctant to help him, for it could cost her her life if she proceeds. You're laying a trap for me, she says, but Saul has come too far to worry about such things, and he compromises his own duty as king and his own call as king by promising that no harm would come to her. Interestingly enough, a promise that is ironically sealed by an oath to the Lord. 
Like he just throws the word Yahweh around like it's candy. It's nothing big. I swear to you by the Lord, I'm not going to kill you. He's doing something that is strictly forbidden by God, and he's using God as his excuse and as a seal of approval. Now, it's important that we see that she does nothing to raise Samuel. This is the big question, right? Well, who is this? Who is this Samuel? Is it really Samuel or is it an apparition? Is it something that's false? Well, interestingly enough, she just simply asks Saul, uh, Sam, Saul, who shall I bring up to you? And then Samuel suddenly appears after he says, bring up Samuel, and poof, Samuel's there. You know, I, like I imagine in my mind that the way that it's described, it's like he's crawling out of the ground, coming up to where they are. There's no indication, though, that she did anything on her own power to do such a thing, which is only reinforced by her reaction at the sight of Samuel. She freaks out. This is something... What is happening is something out of her normal experience as a medium. So you say, well, was it really a spirit? Yes. Did she bring it up? No. She can't do that. Only God can. And so for some reason, God allows Samuel to actually show up, and his very presence unveils Saul's true identity. Now, just as a side note, how angry would you be as Samuel? You're finally in the Lord's presence, the, the God that you have served forever. And Saul tries to bring you back out of his presence. Like, how frustrating that would be. But Saul doesn't have time to waste. He wants to confirm, is this really Samuel? And when it's confirmed, Saul bows down in reverence and honor, apparently hoping to have some sort of influence on Samuel but Samuel would have none of it. He wants none of what Saul is bringing him. So let's read, starting in verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I think that's a gentle way of saying, I'll let your imagination run. Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answers, I'm, I'm afraid of the Philistines and I don't know what to do. You feel like that's like a little kid speaking to a parent. What, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do, you, what, what do you think I should do, Samuel? And Samuel actually doesn't answer the question. That, that's also a parental, a parental thing, right? You don't really answer the question, but instead, 
Samuel reveals and reminds Saul as to why the Lord didn't answer him and then reveals his fate in the coming battle. He doesn't say, well, this is what you should do, Saul. He says, this is what's going to happen to you, Saul. He says, the Lord left you because you disobeyed his direct command concerning the Amalekites. You kept the best of the livestock for yourself instead of devoting it to utter destruction as the Lord had commanded you. And at that moment, the kingdom was torn from you and it was given to your neighbor, David. Moreover, you and your sons will be killed and the army of Israel defeated at the hands of the Philistines. In other words, Saul's house will end and David's house will rule. The moment has come that Saul knew was coming for a very long time. And Saul's reaction to this revelation is immediate. The rest of the chapter, starting in verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Saul's fear, remember initially, he's afraid of the Philistines. Philistines are nothing now. (laughs) His fear shifts from the Philistines to Samuel's words, pointing to Saul's end and the end of his house as king. What little strength he had left is sucked right out of him because he hadn't eaten all day, he hadn't eaten all night, he was fasting. Seeing this, the woman prepares a meal for Saul and his men, which, interestingly enough, is a fitting bookend to Saul's rule. Because if we remember... At the beginning of when he was anointed, Samuel prepared a feast in honor of the establishment of the new kingdom in Saul. And just as it began, so it will end with a meal. Not a meal of celebration, but a meal of mourning. Not with a large crowd of Israel chanting, long live the king, but a small group of four people, depressed and down. What was it that Saul sought? Was he faithfully seeking the will of God when he inquired of the Lord? If Saul's history tells us anything, it's that faithfulness and obedience were not at the top of his list when he sought the Lord's wisdom. In this case, Saul wanted to know if he would win the battle against the Philistines or if he should run away to live and fight another day. But what he found, actually, was only death. It seemed that he sought God when it suited him or when he was caught not seeking God, as was the issue with the Amalekites in chapter 17. 
which was when the Lord finally left him. But what about David? When did David seek the Lord? We just read last week that David forgot the Lord. It was, or two weeks ago, it was a godless chapter. There's no mention of the Lord in David's situation. He runs to the Philistines. But other than that chapter, as we look at his life, up to this point, David's heart was pursuing the will of God. He was putting his own life in God's hands. He's trusting God would fight his battles for him, for the Lord's glory. Where David put his trust in the Lord, Saul put his trust in himself. Where David submitted to and sought out the will of the Lord, Saul submitted to his own fears, and he sought out a medium. Where David would turn back to the Lord after taking matters into his own hands, and we'll see that in in the coming weeks, that he's in the midst of a situation, and he immediately says, finally, after a whole chapter away, God, what do you want me to do? Saul though refused to repent of his disobedience, and the Lord would leave him. Throughout Saul's life, what do we see when he is confronted with sin? He's not repentant. He doesn't turn to the Lord. He says to Samuel a lot of times, well, bless me so that I look good in front of the people. But Saul, you sinned against the Lord. I know, but bless me. You don't see that in David's life up to this point. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks to his disciples, towards his to his disciples' fear and anxiety. This is a famous passage. I mean, the whole Sermon on the Mount is is well known. But in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 32, this is what Jesus says to his disciples. Therefore, I tell you, because of everything that I just said. In the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now that's great. I love that passage. That's so wonderful. But what in the world does this have to do with Saul and Samuel? The answer is actually found in verse 33, which I didn't read. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. He is king, which means his will, his desire, his rule is over his 
people. And as a disciple of Christ, as disciples of Christ, we are called to seek the sovereign rule of God as king over every aspect of our lives. We are to seek a right relationship with him based off of his righteousness, not our righteousness. And Jesus touches on this earlier in Matthew 6, where he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Saul's heart belonged to himself. In his darkest times, he turned away from the Lord. He sought his and his household's survival. It was all about him, and it was all about his survival. His treasure was found on earth, and his treasure failed him. Because in the end, all he found was death. Christ's words in Matthew 6 are not about prosperity, It's not about prosperity, it's about priority. Those are two different things. Christ is basically saying here, where do your priorities lie? When we become anxious, worried about what lies next, do I attack the Philistines or do I not? When we're worried about what direction we should choose, hoping beyond hope that it's the right choice, we've messed up our priorities. Now, again, with priorities, that does not mean it's not important. Should I change jobs? Should we go through the process of adoption? Should we move from this place to that place? We've all dealt with situations. Some of you are dealing with that right now, these major decisions that can change your life. But when we become so anxious and so worried about those things that we lose sight of the kingdom of God, then we've messed up our priorities. He says, seek first the rule and the righteousness of God, and then all these things will be added to you. Seek first God, and then he will give us everything we need, not everything we want. But how do we do that? How do we seek him first when there is so much happening around us that is completely out of our hands? Because Mark, this sounds like if you just do the right thing, then then God's going to be happy with you. Now, if you were here last week, Alan had said something I, I caught right away. It was very profound. He was talking about if God is for us, then who can be against us? And usually we think like God gets over to our side, like God's blessing what I'm doing right now. And, and Alan said, that's not what that is. It's we're going to him. So in a sense, we're on his side. If we're on his side, then what can anybody do to us? You see the difference? It's being in the will and the desire and the presence of the Lord. And he gives us what we need. Instead of, well, God, I'm going to do this, so now I want you to bless me. Because I think this is right, so you come here and bless it. As if we have control over God, and just because we ask him to come and bless it means 
that he's going to come and bless it. I mean, that's Saul. Bless me, Lord. I'm your king, and I want to defeat the Philistines. And in this situation, God says, no, I'm not, and I'm not with you, and you're going to die. You're not in my presence. You're not with me. You were not seeking me first. So how do we do that? I think there's two answers here. And they're both found in the contrary lives of David and Saul. First, David had the presence of the Lord. Saul didn't. When we believe with our hearts that God raised Christ from the dead, when we repent of our sinful rebellion against God, when we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, He is King, He's the sovereign ruler of our lives because He is always right, He is always good, He is always just. When that happens, God sends His presence. He sends Himself. He sends His Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to teach us, to guide us, to convict and encourage us, to empower us to seek His kingdom. This is the weird dichotomy because it sounds like, like legalism, right? If you just seek the Lord, He will come and find you, but you can't seek the Lord because we don't have the power to seek the Lord. God has to do something in us. He has to change our hearts, that our heart is rock, his heart is diamond, and soften it to a heart of flesh so that we might turn to him and set our priorities straight and say, God, you are my king, and I want you to rule over my life, and I know that you will give me everything I need, even though it's not everything I want. He gives us himself to empower us to continue to seek his kingdom to continue to seek his rule and reign in every aspect of our life. It is only by the power of God in us that we are able to seek his rule and righteousness in every aspect of our lives. Does that make sense? We don't serve him to get something out of it. We serve him because he saved us. That's where it starts. We cannot truly serve him if he does not change us and make us his children. And unlike David, he dwells with us forever. He doesn't leave us. You never hear of the Spirit dwelling within David constantly. He comes and he goes. That's the way it works in the Old Testament. Before the cross, then the cross comes. And then God stays forever. Forever. So that's the first answer. David had the presence of the Lord. Saul did not. Secondly, Saul sought his own kingdom, and in the end, he only found death. But when we seek the kingdom of God, when we seek Christ, we find not just life, we find eternal life. John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Did you catch the scripture on the wall during our songs, the woman at the well, he is the water that gives eternal life. And his water, who he is, he doesn't give just a little bit. He just overflows us with life as his children. And so we have to ask ourselves, who or what are we seeking first in our life? Are we seeking first the pleasures of this world? Are we seeking first truth in a world of relativism? 
knowledge in a time of ignorance, joy in times of darkness, and pain, peace in our relationships? Do we seek first justice for wrongs done or perhaps mercy or happiness in times of sadness, love amidst anger, self-control in times of lust and sexual immorality and perversion? If we seek these things first, we will find and receive in the end only death. Because all the joy of this world does nothing for our eternal souls. Nothing. Now again, this doesn't mean we should like be grumpy pants people. Does that make sense? But it's not what we seek first. Because if all we're seeking is joy and happiness or all these other things, they are going to utterly fail us because the day is going to come when it's not a happy day, when everything irritates you, when everything is going wrong, or you're standing at the sink on Friday afternoon and you look out the window and half your fence is on the ground. It was the last straw for me at that moment. And it was the part of the fence that wasn't even broken. That's the irritating part. Like days like that are going to happen. You're going through one right now, and it's more than just a fence. This is sometimes in, it's like life. Life is on the line. I think of Luke. He's not here, so I could talk about him. Luke went in and had surgery on his heart, right? Open heart surgery. His life was on the line. And when you talk to him before he went in for surgery, man, he was scared. But he's like, my life's in God's hands. His priority at that moment was Christ. Now, he's still worried that it was a good doctor, (laughs) but it wasn't his first priority. Who are we seeking first? Because if we seek these things of this world first, they're not going to satisfy. It will be like drinking a glass full of sand in hopes that it's going to quench our dying first. It just doesn't happen. Sure, your mouth is full and your stomach is full, but it's going to all come out eventually, and you are going to be more thirsty than you were before. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first His rule in our life. Seek first Him as King over all things. Place all things in His hands. If we set our hearts on the treasure of heaven, which is Jesus Christ himself, then all these things will be added and we will find and receive life. Now you go, like, what are all these things? Okay, am I going to suddenly make a lot of money? Am I suddenly going to, is the fence going to fix itself? No, it's, it's not. I mean, you guys are more than welcome to do it and surprise me, <laughs> but it's just not going to happen. I'm going to go home today. I'm going to look out that window, and it's still on the, the ground. Nothing has changed. If I seek the Lord first, then I look at that and I say, it's okay. It'll get fixed eventually. It's not the end of the world. Or you can go into surgery where your life is on the line, and you can say, Lord, I want to live, but my life is in your hands. 
through Christ's death on the cross, the debt of death we earned by our sin was paid for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He did what we could not. We can strive to follow God all we want, and in the end, we might do well every once in a while, but we're going to fail. But it's only through Christ that we find the ability and the strength through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us to empower us, to set our priorities straight, seek first the kingdom. And then all those things, all those things that we looked for, all those things that we desired, and if you want to, I would argue all those things that Jesus spoke about in in the Sermon on the Mount, about anger, anxiousness, relationship issues, all those issues of the heart that he lays out, all of those things will be given to us. Do we want more patience? Seek first the kingdom. Do you want to love more? Seek first the kingdom. Do you want to see kindness and joy exude from your life as a disciple of Christ? Seek first the kingdom. And if you've Ask for forgiveness. If you are saved, guess what? You've sought the kingdom. But like David, we need to continue to seek him over and again. Not to be saved. Once saved, always saved. We're done. It's, it's all good. But the sin, the flesh in our life is constantly battling against our desire to seek him first. It's always trying to get us to turn away from him. And we have to fight that battle daily. Seek first the kingdom. And remember that it is only through Christ that we find any kind of life, any kind of life in abundance. And it's only through Christ that we have the presence of God always with us, never to leave us, never to forsake us. This table that we celebrate, this table that we are going to join together as the people of God as a table of remembrance for what He did for us as His people, It's a table of remembering God saved me. Christ did what I could not. And we praise Him for that so that I do not boast in my own works and in my own ways, but I boast in Jesus Christ who is the author and the perfecter of my faith. But it is also a table of celebration. (laughs) Because when we fail at times in our life, we get overwhelmed by the things of this world. God is there. He's still there. And he's still poking the heart saying, Mark, seek me first. And why is he there? It's because of his son who died upon the cross. We remember because he did that, but we remember because he's never going to leave his children, ever ever. So if we find ourselves, man, man, today I failed to seek the kingdom of God. The beauty of that is we're still in the kingdom as his people. We're not Saul if we are saved. But if we are not, 
if we have the heart of Saul and we've turned away from God and we look at this and, and we ridicule it and we think it's nothing and, oh, it's just a nice guy who happened to die and it's not a big deal. It is a big deal because without him doing this, dying on the cross for us, we would all be in Saul's shoes. All of them. All of us. But because of his salvation that he gives us, the Lord gives us through Christ, we are saved from the power of sin, and we receive eternal life, not eternal death. Because in Him and in Him alone do we find life. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, that You would speak to us, that You would remind us who we are, Father, that, that You would empower us to seek You first, Father, not just for salvation, for those who have not turned to you, but Father, as your children, that we need to be reminded constantly, which is why you ask us to come to this table regularly, to remember what you did through your Son, and to remember that we are no longer slaves to this world. We are not slaves to sin. We are slaves to you, and to your righteousness. You are our King, Father. And may you strengthen and empower us to live that out. Remind us of that today as we come to the table. Amen. So when you are ready, all you got to do is be a believer. When you don't have to be a member of this church. We ask that you would ready your hearts, take this seriously, and yet celebrate the salvation that we have by God through Christ. And when you are ready, you can go in the back and make a line and grab the drink, grab the bread, sit down, and then together as a family, as the family of God, we will take this meal together. So come when you are ready.